for marketers focused on finding and targeting their ideal customers at scale. I'm your host, Monique Ruiz. Now, we usually cover this topic in our January episode, so if you were worried we forgot or didn't care anymore, fret not. Consumer privacy is still an everyday topic in the virtual and physical halls of Claritas, and considering the privacy landscape is always changing, you can always count on us to discuss what's new, what's upcoming, and how it impacts the way you go to market and the way you should be working with any third party whom you provide data to or who provides data to you. With me today are two familiar voices, Claritas's Chief Technology Officer, Al Gadbit, and Principal at In-House Privacy, Ben Isaacson. Typically, we'd have two segments to our episode and bring each guest out separately, but we're switching it up today. These two work so closely together that it really just made the most sense to have them on at the same time. First up, though, Al, welcome back to the Marketing Insider. Uh, It's always a pleasure, Monique, and thank you for having me back. Of course. So your title is fairly self-explanatory as to what areas of the Claritas business you concentrate your efforts on. But just so our listeners can paint the picture in their minds, what does your day-to-day look like in your role as chief technology officer? You know, like any sort of quasi startup, and I feel like we're in always in startup mode, you wear a lot of different hats. So it's it's not just coordinating the uh, network administration, the app dev, and the uh, overall uh, data architecture and cloud architecture, but also focusing on uh, privacy concerns for Claritas as well. And then Ben, it's great to have you back on the podcast as well. Thanks. Great to be here. Yeah. So as principal of in-house privacy, what does your role entail and how are you connected to us here at Claritas? So I typically operate similar to outside counsel, focusing on privacy, advertising, marketing. However, I try and provide services that are like more like a hybrid inside counsel where companies may not have a full-time privacy officer, full-time privacy counsel. I kind of come in as, a, as that hybrid and have been advising Claritas for some time. Excellent. Let's go ahead and hop into these questions. So Al, first for you, you just came back from CES not too long ago, which for anybody who's not familiar is an annual trade show put on by the Consumer Technology Association, and they bill it as the most powerful tech event in the world and the only one that showcases the entire tech landscape at one event. Can you give us a quick debrief of the show and what new and exciting things you saw, you learned, and you took away from attending? You know, it was my first time in, at CES, uh, which is Consumer Electronics Show, in, in a long time. And one of the big differences is that there's all this focus on uh, consumer electronics and there's new features within the uh, overall show. And one of the new features is in the area of entertainment, uh, data, and marketing technology. Uh, which was really great to see. If there was an overall theme to this year's uh, Consumer Electronics Show, I would have to say it's AI. Everything from uh, head-up displays, from sunglasses to virtual reality, everything was AI. Mm -hmm. Uh, In the consumer um, data and entertainment space, everybody is working with AI to try and figure out how to utilize AI to provide a better experience, lower cost, 
uh, get the information to the consumer quicker that they might be interested in in consuming. Yeah, it's it's great to kick off the year with an event like that since it brings so many people together to discuss, learn more about so many areas and topics important to the tech industry. And you mentioned AI, which I've got a lot of questions for you guys later on in the episode around AI. But Ben, let me switch it over to you real quick. So Last year, uh, we saw around, I want to say, five-ish privacy legislations that came out similar to California's CCPA. Has the industry seen a major change with these legislations? And are there any new ones that are currently being discussed that we expect to see come into effect this year? Uh, yes, major changes more to come, I think is the, the, the simple answer. Um, the, more, the more complicated one is the enforcement of the ones that have been passed. And that's where I think our focus needs to be, uh, because uh, in particular, the you know, California Consumer Privacy Act has really not been enforced yet to any, any measure. But the creation of the California Privacy Protection Agency uh, that came with the CCPA and the amendment, the Consumer Privacy Rights Act, the CPRA, empowering this new agency to start enforcement uh, in the end of March is going to have major repercussions because it's the first time, you know, outside of the FTC Act 50 years ago, um, that we actually have an enforcement body in the United States with clear regulations that they've put out mm -hmm. to enforce against, and they have the budget to enforce it now. Uh, as far as the, the new laws go, there are a few that are really noteworthy, biggest being uh, the Washington My Health, My Data law that also comes into, a, it's already in effect, but goes into effect uh, with, with a private right of action for litigation starting in at the end of March as well. Most of the other state laws that are either on the books or, or coming just don't have the kind of teeth or enforcement you know, that drives the, the major compliance changes or, or risk um, for businesses. But, you know, again, uh, these three states, California, Washington and, and Colorado are certainly on everyone's radar. OK, so big question coming for you, Al. For the average consumer, data privacy seems to play a role in three key areas, I would say, trust, acquisition and retention. So as a provider who works with both PII, that personally identifiable information, and non-PII, how do we at Claritas make sure that we're walking the fine line of earning and keeping consumer trust by ensuring the sensitive data that we have doesn't get breached, that we're using targeted but not creepy messaging to reach potential clients, mm -hmm. and that we're not in danger of losing our clients or their customers due to lax handling of more sensitive data? Basically, what kind of methods do we have in place here? Right. So I, just at the, at the front end of this, I probably would state the question a little bit differently or make the comment a little bit differently that I think for consumers, the, the three key areas, you're, you're spot on, absolutely trust. I would say also uh, relevancy. Mm, okay. uh, and then third probably would be fair exchange. And I don't know if okay. I'll get to fair exchange. And that one is, is while I think very important, it's more uh, in the back of people's minds as opposed to at the front end. Uh, but that's a, a bigger issue that it'd be worth covering. Um, but under trust, you know, it's key for consumers. They want to know that the, that the data that they have shared out with a particular organization is, is being kept uh, safely and, and not being shared uh, in places that, that they would feel uncomfortable with. 
I think that when you look at Claritas as a company, there's you know just a lot of data that people would be very uh, concerned about that we don't carry. So we don't carry health-related information. We don't carry uh, specific financial information. We don't carry any specific information about uh, people's orientation. Mm-hmm. Uh, these are just things that we don't we don't delve into as it relates to how we manage data on on our back end. So we've completed for the third year in a row, uh, SOC 2 compliance. It's it's an external audit that comes in and verifies that you're following uh, good practices for data security, uh, backend security, to some extent, some privacy. And and under SOC 2, as it relates to data, all of our data within our backend environment sits encrypted at rest. So if we were to get a hack, uh, there's really no information that uh, a hacker is going to come away from. They're not going to get personal information from us. First of all, we don't carry it. But secondly, or or deep personal uh, information, we don't carry that. But secondly, all that information in our back end is encrypted. Right. Uh, we encrypt the information as we move that inf- move it back and forth to our clients uh, or as we move it out to various platforms. Another area that I want to say we're doing a good job is purging information. So, uh, you know, years ago, you know, people looked at it and said, well, disk space is cheap, so let's just save everything that we possibly can. And and honestly, that it, it causes two problems. One, there's obviously legal liability if you lose control of that data. But secondly, it just gets to be too cumbersome to, to process through a lot of data that is either old, it could be misleading, and it just is it's costlier to process that data when it's it's not information that you're going to be using uh, more regularly. So we've gone through a process of trying to understand what data we want to try and keep. Uh, and for how long we want to keep that. It, it, it's actually called out in um, uh, CPRA that you need to be able to uh, walk through or have policies around your data retention and, and make them somewhat defensible. You have to be able to explain why, and there has to be a good reason why you want to hang on to data. By and large, most of the data that comes to us, you know, when you think about our bread and butter type work where we're working with, say, for example, a, a uh, client's uh, customer data list, and they mm-hmm. want to try and enhance that with some type of segmentation. Our policy has always been that that after we process that file, we'll only hold on to that data in the, in the entire project for no more than 30 days. And after that, that information is uh, deleted. So our clients understand that. Um, and, and as a whole, I think that that's a, a great policy. Further on, on what data we retain now, um, We've, we've uh, instituted these policies to begin jettisoning uh, older data sets that, uh, like I say, we're not really touching anymore. Ben, when you and I were coordinating schedules to be able to record this episode, this is kind of tying in here, you brought up the DELETE Act in California. You mentioned that it's specific to data brokers, which means that it does have an impact on Claritas. But can you explain a little bit about what falls under the DELETE Act? Yeah, and, and for a little bit of background, it might be helpful to know, you know, the CCPA along the same at the same time that the CCPA was enacted, a law specifically governing data brokers was also enacted simply to require data brokers to register with the state of California. Okay. And so this registration has been around for a few years now, and the scope of the CPRA changes incorporated 
you know, other aspects of data sharing that, you know, may, may also, you know, awaken companies to being in the data broker world and get them to register. Um, but it, you know, the, there wasn't enough of a focus on enforcement of existing laws against, you know, the CCPA, even against data brokers. So a group of privacy advocates um, convinced privacy legislators to pass a law specific to data brokers called the Delete Act um, that first and foremost requires them to register with an enforcement penalty if they don't register uh, up to like $200 per day. So everybody who is in the space who, you know, in any way is a data broker under the California definition uh, and a business as, as far as the California you know definition goes, uh, needs to register if they haven't already, they're, they're already, you know, looking at a potential fine. Um, but this law is, is extremely unique in the way that it targets the licensing of data and the ramifications of uh, sort of the downstream uses of licensed data typically is, uh, is in the data broker world. But, you know, again, many companies may not understand that they're, they're now in scope if they're licensing data and relicensing that data to, to others, um, even, you know, ad agencies, for example, that might do this as a course of business may, may now fall in scope. Um, and there are immediate obligations uh, that require every company who, who is considered to be a data broker to account for the metrics and the processes that they're engaged in responding to the CCPA slash CPRA data subject rights around deletion, you know, objection, even uh, access requests, um, and the time that it takes them to respond, the quantity of these requests, and they need to publish this information starting in July, which is, I think, pretty novel out there to, to create transparency around um, these data broker, you know, kind of response activities to mm -hmm. privacy compliance requests, again, just for California. Right. That's not even the, the big one. Uh, the, the biggest issue is, is still a couple of years out, but California is embarking on this grandiose ambitions mission to create a do not sell, you know, uh, registry uh, that will require data brokers to honor sort of similar to the FTC, do not call registry, a uh, list of people who have opted out and or, you know, okay. again, requested deletion. So um, that doesn't come into effect till 2026. You know, this California Privacy Protection Agency has to create this registry over the next couple of years. It'll be extremely complicated. I have doubts it will actually come to fruition for both cost reasons um, and actually constitutionality. I don't believe it is constitutional for them to create this registry. That's a whole other conversation, though. <laughs> right. <laughs> do you, and did you say, do you foresee other states adopting their own version of, like, the Delete Act? Since, Cal like you said earlier, California seems to lead the way when it comes to privacy law in the U.S. I, I doubt it. I, okay. I, and I, I sincerely hope that legislators are aware of their, again, constitutional boundaries between right. what is a state-specific enforcement action versus, you know, again, federal enforcement. Uh, honestly, I think the, the bigger issue is, is really more of enforcement of their existing law because the, the, the fact is, even under the California law, like, you know, the CPPA can enforce against data brokers and their deletion or opt-out requests. And, and the big thing about the CPRA regulations that come into effect uh, starting at the end of next month is 
the introduction of third-party agent authorizations. And so you'll see, you know, more of these kind of cottage industry, you know, privacy tech solutions that empower, are empowering the technology to go automate um, requests for deletion, for example, to data brokers listed on the registry. And so there's really no need for the Delete Act when you have automated third-party agents, you know, sending out mass, you know, requests to every data broker that's already listed and that the CPPA can come in and audit and, and enforce against that, those requests. So mm-hmm. I think other states are going to follow suit in the sense of they can, they can certainly, you know, go inquire if data brokers are honoring deletion requests and educate their consumers that they can, they are empowered to request deletion. Um, and, and there's really no need for a new law to try and address this. Okay. And Al, this, I mean, this might be a loaded question, but so far we've seemed to have taken the approach of making the most restrictive laws commonplace for how we practice just so we're prepared when other states inevitably decide to follow suit if they do. Do you see us continuing to say, take that same sort of approach, whether it's with you know other states trying to come up with their own delete acts or whatever the next yeah. legislation that comes into play is? I think we definitely are. And, and okay. just to go into that a little bit more, Within California and, and several states who've uh, enacted laws similar to California's uh, CCPA, CPRA laws, we provide everybody in the United States uh, an opportunity to uh, opt out, to request mm-hmm. that their data be deleted from our database, or to request what type of information, what personal information we carry on our database about them. Um, as it re- relates to the Delete Act, we're trying to figure out with these uh, individual agencies who are now popping up in mass uh, request deletion, opt-outs, or possibly what data might be carried on behalf of uh, their their customer. It gets to be challenging to determine you know, how are they certified to be able to be this this agent, and how well are they individually vetting that the individual that the consumer who's requested uh, these actions be taken is actually the person they say they are right. and mm-hmm. and there's certain liabilities associated with that so you know certainly we get the idea of opt out and and uh, deletion requests and you know outside of where you might end up with uh, some sort of malicious intent where somebody basically downloads the phone book and says opt out you know the state of California um, you can generally see something like that coming, but in the situation where uh, an individual is is requesting what data is uh, personal information is being carried on them, we need to know that the that the agency has truly vetted uh, so that the and, and determined that the person that who is asked for that information is truly the person um, that we're talking about. And you can envision a, a, a situation where somebody might be, uh, you know, a stalker. And they want to get more information about somebody and they represent themselves to one of these agents and they come to companies like ours to get various other personal information. Mm. And if that information is subsequently used to injure that person, who's liable? Right. And so, you know, it's it's for us right now, I'm, I'm struggling a little bit with understanding how these agencies are going to be vetted and certified and subsequently what their requirements are going to be to to further uh, verify the identity of the person who is representing themselves to be an, uh, an individual uh, to take these actions. So, 
it's going to be interesting to see how this how this all shapes out. And, and Ben, I don't know if you have have thoughts on that. Yeah, I, I have a lot of thoughts on that. I think that you know again. <laughs> The biggest issue again for data brokers, like there's there's two types of data brokers I think that are in that are in scope here, specifically for these third party agent requests. The primary one is actually not the Claritas's of the world that are in the marketing space, but really more of the people search entities. And these you know data brokers have, have been accused of enabling things like doxing that, you know, unveil, you know, private, you know, personal information about, you know, individuals or judges or cops or whatever, you know, sort of sensitive categories of information. And so, you know, there have been laws, including in like New Jersey and other places where they've tried to do anti-doxing laws, but unfortunately they've created third-party agent requests for all data brokers. And so direct marketers and marketing agencies get, you know, looped in there. Right. And so now, you know, in addition to having to identify like, oh, well, do you have a legal valid request under a state law? Do you have a legal valid request under under a third party agent authorization? Uh, and, you know, are we even relevant to you? <laughs> you know, it's the, it's the kind of the bigger question, like, you know, you're coming to an ed tech company or marketing tech company instead of a people search company. Um, and so, hey, you know, third party agent, you know, that's dumping, you know, tens of thousands of requests on my lap. Uh, maybe you should, you know, not be targeting us with these requests and really focusing on companies that that you're trying to, you know, protect your customers against. So there's a lot more due diligence that's going to be required uh, over the next few months and year, even uh, to be able to parse that out, educate these these tech companies that are trying to be third party agents and good stewards of information that you know maybe they shouldn't be sharing tens of thousands of requests with data brokers that don't actually have the data or need to respond to them. Right. Great point. Al, there are some laws that have come to pass or are going through legislation now that have come about in part due to some perceived mistrust of data brokers. So if any of our podcast listeners have those same concerns, what are some of the questions or topics they should discuss with a third-party provider that they're evaluating, like the Claritas's of the world, to maybe ease their concerns about how uh, the data they share is protected? I know you talked earlier about what we do to make sure sensitive data is protected, you know, the purging and not uh, collecting data that we don't need. But are there any other discussion questions or topics that they should think about as they're evaluating a provider? Individual consumers aren't necessarily sharing data with us. Right. uh, But Clients are the questions that clients should be asking. You know, a the, the the security related questions. You know, what are you doing with their data? Is it encrypted? How are you caring for it? How long are you hanging on to it? Uh, are you incorporating our data into your data <laughs> going forward? You know, these are, these are are, are important questions. Uh, I, I kind of laugh because it's in our mind, it's kind of no brainers. We don't do those kind of things, but those are important questions. Um, you know, aside from that, though, I, I think it's important to to ask the question: What other businesses are you in? You know, what what other data sits within your overall uh, data set that you sit on behind your firewall? Okay. Yeah. Um, you know, are you strictly in the consumer business? Is, is there more sensitive data that you're dealing with on the backside that pertains to health issues or or informing insurance companies or or uh, you know, educational uh, system, you know, what other data, what other businesses are you in? And you may want to think about that then if is you're placing your data for something uh, 
much more benign, uh, but it is your consumer data. And maybe there's really rich information on there. Maybe you don't necessarily want to work with somebody who is in a variety of different businesses. Um, uh, for us, it's, it's pretty simple and straightforward. We're only in uh, marketing services. We don't dabble in uh, financial tech services. We don't dabble in health information. You know, there's just a whole wide variety of things that we don't much more secure information, um, uh, special personal information that we just don't deal with that. I think that when you're, when you're looking for some of these services, you may want to work with people who are specialized in the particulars and not overly broad going into a lot of different areas. Yeah, that's a good point. And so, Ben, AI has had a major impact on the industry over the last couple of years, similar to how a few years ago, the words identity resolution were the hot topic, the you know, almost buzzwords. What are some of the current protections in place against any AI-related privacy issues? And what do you foresee as the future for that? It should be noted, again, these current you know, suite of new state privacy laws govern AI already. And so companies building, you know, large language models or, you know, just incorporating large data sets into machine learning algorithms and whatnot need to understand that if there's a deletion request by an individual, it, it has to be incorporated into these, these algorithms and models um, in the same way it would be into a CRM database if it's trying to contact an individual. So that's, that's really paramount. And a lot of companies have to kind of build uh, that automation and functionality is, is like privacy by design into their AI solutions uh, so that they can respond to these, you know, again, legal valid requests to uh, remove information or, or suppress the information against uses for, for certain types of marketing or whatnot, um, as well as, um, you know, the, the use of sensitive personal information, which, um, you know, again, like in the, in the direct marketing world, you know, we, we've always kind of sort of looked at ethnicity and certain categories that we, we saw as sort of benign marketing areas are now considered sensitive and have even um, consent required as part of certain state laws. So building into, you know, an algorithm or a lookalike model or whatever you're trying to do um, using AI, uh, you know, that might incorporate select demographic categories now need to either you know, geofence those categories for certain states uh, and build that into your, your model. Um, or again, you know, just try and suppress against, um, you know, these categories at the state level, uh, you know, or just altogether. And so it's becoming much more critical that, that privacy or compliance or legal, you know, is involved in the AI modeling and AI de algorithm development efforts uh, to incorporate that sort of, you know, privacy by design solution at the, at the point of inception, uh, rather than trying to have to like reverse engineer it later, uh, where it might be too late and you might already have an enforcement action against you. And so we've seen, you know, even open AI got suspended in Italy, you know, for this very reason they fixed it, you know, and I think they've now been fixing it around the world. Uh, but current privacy laws already, you know, is, is in effect. Uh, and companies are just having to respond and hopefully, you know, the new ones will pay attention to this from the beginning. Okay. So I want to ask you about that last point there. So there, there is some continued uncertainty about the use of information that is fed into AI engines like ChatGPT. For example, if someone mistakenly includes something PII related, 
into ChatGPT, does that now become public information available for anyone or are there safeguards in place simply beyond being smart about what we feed into these on the consumer side? Yeah, I mean, OpenAI, I think, has done a commendable job of trying to address this uh, with all their solutions, including ChatGPT. And um, and again, you know, you, you'll you'll put in requests to ChatGPT for certain information about individuals, uh, and uh, and they will reject you know those okay. requests now. So they're they're building it into their tool, and then trying to again take more of a hybrid approach where you might you know you might store personal information. Um, you know, on your computer or whatnot, you know, and, but it might, again, it's not going to, and the, the use case for, for that uh, might be in your own mini cloud environment, right? Where it's not necessarily going to be accessible to others mm-hmm. uh, if you feed it into ChatGPT. So they're thinking hard about privacy. Uh, and I think most of the other, at least big AI companies are thinking hard about it, but it's the startup community that, that I work with. Personally, I've got a couple of AI clients uh, that I work with on this. That it's you know it's imperative that they think about this uh, from day one rather than trying to reverse engineer it later. Right, right. And then you are also talking a little bit about you know some of the sensitive information. So one of the biggest challenges that I've seen um, from some of the research that I've done and just conversations I've been a part of is bias. So I'm not sure if there's any correlation, but does bias tie into the consumer privacy landscape at all, in your opinion? Absolutely. Yes. In every okay. situation that AI is being developed and algorithmic, you know, novels are developed, especially for marketing purposes, these algorithms are developed by humans and training models are right. decided by humans. And so the data you train on will always have a direct implication on, on, and always have some skewed result. Um, and that could result in bias, especially if you're feeding in demographic data, um, because it's really only as good as whatever training data you've got. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you might skew that towards, you know, a, a sensitive population. It could be elderly, it could be ethnicity. There's so many protected categories now right. uh, across these state laws that, you know, that bias could result in a compliance issue, uh, or it could just result in an intersection with other laws you may not even be thinking of, um, such as, you know, the fair housing laws and employment, you know, discrimination and uh, things like that, where you may not know that your algorithm is uh, is running afoul of, of these laws or even just sensitivities by advocacy groups like the ACLU or, or other organizations. Okay. And Al, um, considering we acquired an AI company last year, you know, this topic is extremely relevant for us, but I'm curious how AI is changing the conversations that you're having internally and with the peer groups that you're involved with um, that are helping interpret the privacy regulations that have come out in recent years. Can you talk a bit about that for us? Most of our peers are searching uh, for how they want to deploy AI. So you know, there, there, it could be just as simple as, as chatbots that might be uh, helping to organize your, your uh, policy information uh, or marketing information. Uh, it could be uh, utilizing AI to drive better outcomes for optimized campaign performance. Uh, AI can do things that, that uh, a regular business analyst uh, at a company you know, might be able to focus on 10 or 15 different variables. AI can focus on 10,000 or 15,000 different variables. 
and and just just the sheer uh, scope of what AI can do is so much more powerful than what we were able to do in the past. That being said, many of our peers are are trying to figure out how to deploy AI because as you look at your business, your business challenges, there's literally hundreds of things that you might want to improve upon, and AI could be deployed against uh, any of those potentially. And so you, you now have to think through, well, if you're going to start adapting this tool, uh, this, this capability, how best to do that? How, how are you going to thread that into your existing products? How are you going to uh, help make solutions better for your, for your clients? Um, and, and for us in acquiring this, this uh, AI company, which was Arts AI, you know, they have individuals uh, at that company who've been thinking about this and practicing this for the last five, six years. So it's not just uh, machine learning, but also large language models that uh, we're developing tools to help provide better solutions for our clients in anything from uh, optimizing your audience to optimizing the message in real time that you're providing to or, or sending to or exposing uh, consumers to. And it's amazing when you look at how well they perform uh, in terms of uh, providing relevant, wanted information that the consumer is looking for and much more likely to engage in that offer uh, mm -hmm. because it's more, it's better tuned to what that consumer is, is looking for. The feedback that I've gotten from other folks within the uh, within our ecosystem is that many of the things that we've been demoing over the last couple of months are things that they've been thinking about and have begun to start put in putting into general development, but they're still a long ways away. Okay. Uh, what that means to me is that I wouldn't necessarily say are our first mover, but we are still more or less at the forefront within this right. field. But this is going to close quickly. People will catch up. Uh, at the very least, they're going to see what other people are doing that's working and quickly try and develop things uh, that mirror what yes, what, uh, right. what is working in the space. All right. So I have one last question for you guys today, uh, and it's one I'd like to pose to both of you. So Claritas currently operates on a U.S. level primarily, but in thinking about the future and potential global business expansion, that opens up a new can of privacy worms. <laughs> so what are the top privacy concerns or challenges when doing business globally? And if that's something you know we're considering doing in the future as a business, or if others listening are considering it for their own business, is it worth it to start working towards meeting those global regulations now? Well, I, I think the first the answer is yes. Um, and I think that, that Ben and I maybe have slightly different viewpoints on this one. We are definitely getting a lot of interest in in Europe, UK, South America, uh, APAC, and obviously it's critical to be uh, aware of and compliant as best you can with all of those different regulations in, in all those different geographies. Mm -hmm. We're trying to figure out the balance of how to enter a market, enter a market intelligently while stepping into it, but not taking on the full cost of 100% compliance, uh, which could debilitate a product before it even gets into market. So we're trying to come up with a plan to intelligently enter a market whereby we take best approaches to be compliant going in, but knowing that we still have some steps to take that as we get uh, into the market, 
more and, and find more success and start growing, then we will uh, stepwise increase uh, our compliance to be fully compliant within any, any given marketplace that we're entering into. Right. And Ben, what are your thoughts there? I think what's great about Europe in particular is they kind of set the tone for enforcement. And, uh, and so we've seen, you know, it took a, took a few years for them to kind of get up to speed, but, um, but it's been, you know, really interesting to watch them, you know, all the countries really start to enforce their laws, especially around um, cookies uh, and other sort of tracking technologies. Um, the French in particular have been extremely aggressive in how they're even looking at mobile ad IDs and whatnot. And, and so, you know, we should be learning as a global, you know, privacy compliance function, you know, what those focal points are and how to fix them for the United States or for other, other markets that you're, you're going into. Um, and in particular, like in the U.S., like, you know, for example, you know, we're seeing like most websites today implement cookie banners. And these are a little different than, than the European cookie banners. Um, but, you know, the, the most important thing is the European cookie banners have a very defined function and a utility and audit trail and things that are, you know, kind of built into the compliance functionality. Whereas in the U.S., these are, I don't know, I would call them sort of vaporware-ish. Like they're not really serving the right purpose for consent or for meaningful in, in interactions with end users to build on, you know, again, the permission marketing or other types of privacy-based marketing that we've been, you know, using for, for decades. Uh, they're really more just sort of a, a weird CYA thing that isn't actually required by the law. But that's going to change where companies are going to have to like improve upon that user experience uh, in their consent management, expand the scope to not just be focused on like cookies, but also maybe email addresses that are used for addressable IDs or identity resolution or any of the things that, again, a lot of the, the companies maybe listening to this are doing, um, where, you know, the, the whole privacy by design ethos has to be baked in to, um, to that permission landscape, uh, where it isn't really, you know, as, as notable today as, it, you know, in the U.S. as it is in Europe and other places. And I'm bullish on this global, mm -hmm. you know, kind of privacy compliance, you know, infrastructure that I think is taking shape. Uh, and hopefully companies are going to pay more attention to that, you know, and learn from what, uh, what's been going on the last few years. Yeah, this has been a great conversation because it always helps me get up to speed on what's happening uh, with the privacy landscape. But it's also one that brings up even more questions after we finish the episode. So, you know, just for our listeners sake, we will definitely be tackling this topic throughout the year, not just with this podcast episode. So make sure that you keep a close watch on our website for more content to be released and more discussions to be had. Al, thank you, as always, for joining me as our internal subject matter expert on privacy. Thank you, Monique. This has been a pleasure, as always. Great. And then, Ben, thank you for joining us as the overall industry expert. Yeah, thanks for having me. I also want to give you a second just to plug anything that you want our listeners to know about the work you're doing and are involved in, but also uh, where can they go to connect with you or in-house privacy um, if they'd like to work with you guys? Oh, thank you. I, uh, my website is inhouseprivacy.com, uh, but I'm also very active on LinkedIn. I encourage anybody to connect with me or follow. I try and publish stuff that's interesting, you know, and, you know, forward, you know, interesting news articles with opinions. Um, so I'm, I'm, a, I'm a very active LinkedIn user and happy to connect to anybody. 
and we'll make sure that we include all relevant links in the show notes. So pay attention to those if you want to um, grab the links. And of course, I also want to thank those of you that are actually listening at home or on the go. If you've not already, please take a moment to follow the Marketing Insider so you never miss an episode. Rate us five stars on your podcast app of choice, our favorite being Spotify, and share us with a friend or colleague so we can keep the conversation going. And with that, we'll see you next time with a brand new episode. Bye now. Thank you.